Good morning. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Despite all of the hundreds of denominations that have developed over church history, ultimately there is only one body and one spirit and one Lord and one faith and one baptism. That's true today. It's always been true since the beginning of the church on Pentecost Sunday, 33 A.D., as described in Acts chapter 2. This unity has always been true, even though at times individual Christians, local churches, sometimes whole denominations, ignore, overlook, or underappreciate this. Well, our passage today emphasizes this inherent spiritual unity in Christ that all church-age believers have with one another because it's the work of God, and that's true regardless of the culture, color, or country that a believer or a church is associated with. And our passage in Acts 8, verse 1 through 25, talks about the first time in church history that Samaritans come to faith in Christ, the Jewish Messiah, who is the Savior of the world. And the apostles make it a point in this passage to ensure that the Samaritans and believers everywhere understand that they, the Samaritans, are just as much a part of the capital C church, the body of Christ, as anyone else with the same privileges and responsibilities. Very interesting passage, some unique things happening here. And so let's pray that uh, we'll be teachable to God's word as we feed on the scripture this morning. All right, we're looking at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. And our passage breaks down into two parts. First, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8, we're going to see the new status of the church in Jerusalem. And then in verses 4 through 25, we're going to see the new church in Samaria. So we have the new status of the church in Jerusalem, and then the new church in Samaria. Let's read verses 1 through 3 for uh, our context here uh, in uh, looking at the new status of the church in Jerusalem. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Verse 1 says, Saul, going to stop there. Who in the world is Saul? Go back to verse 58 of the previous chapter, Acts 7, verse 58. When they, the crowd led by religious leaders in Jerusalem, enraged at Stephen, when they had driven him, Stephen, out of the city walls of Jerusalem, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. There's Saul. He's a guy who is an accessory to the stoning of Stephen. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Sounds a lot like, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Having said this, he fell asleep. 
to sleep or to fall asleep is a euphemism for the death of a believer, referring to the way the body appears. The body is dormant. It appears to be asleep in that sense. But uh, death for the believer is not soul sleep. The sleeping in that euphemism is referring to the appearance of the body, not the dynamics of the soul, as Second Corinthians 5 tells us. For a believer in Christ in the church age, death is to be absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. Our consciousness, our soul, goes to be with the Lord at death. But the point is, we have the first Christian martyr, Stephen, just outside the city of Jerusalem, and Saul was involved in that event. And now we read, chapter 8, verse 1, Saul, the same guy who was an accessory to the stoning of Stephen, uh, and watched it happen, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Technically, Saul didn't throw any rocks, but he was uh, 110% in with the group. And on that day, that very day, a great persecution broke out uh, against the church in Jerusalem. So the death of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen, kind of uh, catalyzed a much wider persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered among the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Now some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentation over him. But Saul, there's Saul again, the guy who was an accessory to the stoning, who was in hearty agreement with the killing of Stephen. But Saul began ravaging the church in Jerusalem, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them into prison. The new status of the church in Jerusalem is simply this, that after Stephen's death, Christians in Jerusalem were now targets for persecution and even execution. Most of the believers who had lived in the city left reluctantly, but they continued to live and share their faith and Philip is going to be a prime example of that. So uh, realize that uh, it says in verse, uh, latter part of verse 1 here, uh, on that day, the day of the stoning of Stephen, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they, the believers that made up that church, were scattered throughout Judea, the region in which the city of Jerusalem was located, and Samaria, the region just north of Judea. Uh, and there's a lot of history and drama that exists between the residents of Judea and Samaria, as we'll talk about. Uh, just remember, please, that uh, just before the ascension back in chapter 1, the Lord Jesus says, hey, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit, until the church begins proper in the next chapter at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, Pentecost Sunday, 33 AD. Uh, stay in Jerusalem, uh, and then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and out to the uttermost parts of the world. And so we're seeing this geographic spread of the gospel catalyzed by a severe persecution, a great persecution that began against the church on the day in which uh, Stephen was stoned to death. Now, what do we know about Saul? Well, we know quite a bit about Saul uh, from the book of Acts and uh, from uh, Philippians 3, where he talks about himself. In Acts 22, when uh, Saul, we know him better as Paul, was arrested 
uh, in the process of being detained in Jerusalem. He asked permission to uh, speak to the crowd, and he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel, uh, the most famous rabbi of the day, strictly according to the law of our fathers being zealous for God. Just as you all are today, I persecuted this way. I persecuted the enemies of the faith of Judaism, including the church, which is called this way here, the New Testament church. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison. So Paul was a upstanding, pharisaical Jewish uh, up-and-comer in the structure, the bureaucracy of first-century Judaism until the events of Acts chapter 9, which we'll see in a few weeks, Lord willing, that totally radically changed the direction of his life. In Philippians 3, Paul also talks about himself. He's not bragging, but as a background for what he's saying about salvation by faith and not by works. And he says in Philippians 2, or Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Beware of the dogs. So if you're a cat lover, you're right where God wants you to be. We're supposed to watch out for dogs, right? Uh, beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Let's stop there. Just kidding about the dogs. Uh, verse 2, uh, Philippians 3, describes false teachers three different ways. Paul calls them dogs, evil workers, false circumcision. Uh, people who teach, who were teaching uh, that salvation was through the works of the law, even telling some of Paul's converts after the fact, the Gentiles, Hey, you can't just believe in the Jewish Messiah and have salvation. You've got to embrace Judaism, uh, including male ritual circumcision, and put yourself uh, under the kosher regulations, and then you can receive Jesus as Savior. But as we like to say, that's not the way it works. There's no pre-qualifications. No one's so bad they can't have salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. No one's so good they don't need to have salvation and receive salvation through faith alone. In Christ alone. Uh, he goes on. He's going to describe himself. He says, We are the true circumcision, the spiritual circumcision, and worship God and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh, what we could do on our own bodies to save ourselves. Although, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If you want to say that God grazes on a curve based on good works, which he doesn't. But if you want to talk and argue uh, in that direction, I bet I can beat you. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I can probably beat you. Circumcised on the eighth day, exactly as the Old Testament law stipulated, of the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. My family were not proselytes. We were Hebrews of Hebrews, a direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As to the law of Pharisee, the strictest sect, S-E-C-T, of first century Judaism, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness found in the law through human performance and behavior modification based on the Old Testament law, I was blameless. I was as good as you could get, humanly speaking. But whatever things like that that were gained to me in my mind, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost. Anything I could stack up to try to impress God and earn salvation in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I've suffered the loss of all things. And he lost his career, his pension, everything when he embraced Christ. 
and count them but rubbish, scubia, which is actually a rougher term than rubbish in the original, that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that, that kind of righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Our sins imputed to Christ and judged on the cross. His righteousness imputed to the believing sinner. We don't just get our sins forgiven, although we get our sins forgiven. We also have the imputation of the perfect righteousness of Christ, which makes us legally fit for heaven. So uh, we're going to see a lot about Saul slash Paul beginning in chapter 8, but here we see him introduced as the leader of a crusade against the church in Jerusalem. Okay, Now let's move to uh, the second part of this passage today, and we're moved from the new status of the church in Jerusalem under uh, lethal attack led by Saul, the new status of the church in Jerusalem, verses 1 through 3. Now let's look at the the new church in Samaria, verses 4 through 25. And uh, let's begin by reading verses 4 through 8. Philip's evangelistic ministry to the Samaritans is blessed by God as he proclaims Christ directly to the Samaritans. Look at verse 4. Therefore, in the aftermath of the persecution of the church in Jerusalem and with people leaving uh, to avoid martyrdom, those who had been scattered from Jerusalem into greater Judea and Samaria went about preaching the word. They left town, but they took their faith with them. And a specific example of that, verse 5, would be Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. He's going up if you're talking about south to north, but he's going down if you're talking about elevation. Okay, you always go up to Jerusalem because it's on top of a mountain. Uh, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention. We're not just paying attention, but we're embracing, and that's the kind of import of it, to what was being said by Philip, and he's preaching Christ to them as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in the city. Uh, Let's talk about Samaritans and Philip. Uh, Philip was introduced to us back in chapter 6. Back in chapter 6, we had some people in the church aggrieved. The Hellenistic widows in the church felt they were being overlooked in the food ministry. And so the apostles said, you know what? The church needs to deal with this. We need to make sure everybody's being treated fairly, and they understand that. But we apostles don't have the time personally to do that. We've got other things to do. They were purpose-driven. So that's a point or actually they took it to the congregation and said, you suggest um, people full of the Spirit who are good servants, and uh, we'll make them the first deacons, as it were. There were seven men selected. Uh, The first one on the list in chapter 6 is Stephen. And we know Stephen was martyred for the faith back in chapter 7. And the second person on the list was Philip. Philip the Evangelist, as he's sometimes called, because he's not Philip the Apostle. He's a different guy with the same name. So we're going to see uh, Philip ministering first in Samaria this week and then in Gaza with an Ethiopian 
visitor from Ethiopia. I guess I said an Ethiopian visitor from Ethiopia, yeah, as opposed to an Ethiopian uh, visitor from Connecticut or something like that. But we're going to see Philip very active here in chapter 8, doing apostle-like kind of ministries, definitely a pioneer missionary on uh, the uh, evangelistic front here, pioneer uh, front. Now, let's talk about Samaritans. Samaritans and Jews didn't get along, and I think sometimes people think it's uh, just the Samaritans hated the Jews or the, uh, the Jews hated Samaritans. Both sides were equal opportunity offenders and haters for the most part. Uh, it goes back to the fact that over centuries the Samaritans had been uh, were part Jewish and part Gentile, and they uh, created their own distorted, personalized version of religion based on parts of Judaism and parts of the Hebrew Bible. They only accepted the first five books as Scripture. And so there was a huge... A religious, uh, ethnic, cultural, moral divide between Jews and Samaritans for centuries. A lot of hatred, a lot of prejudice, cut both ways. Uh, so much so that when uh, Jews had to travel from Judea in the south of Canaan up to Galilee, the uh, area around the Sea of Galilee, another Jewish area, uh, they wouldn't go through Samaria, which is right between those two regions. They'd go around it. They'd go on the uh, east side of the Jordan River and go all the way around it. Uh, What did we see the Lord Jesus do in regard to that type of prejudice? Uh, Well, in John chapter 4, the Lord makes it a point to go right through the center of the region of Samaria, and he offers uh, a woman in uh, Sychar, the city, who's actually so immoral, she's kind of an outcast among Samaritans. I mean, the Jews saw the Samaritans as a race, as outcasts, the Samaritans saw this woman as an outcast, as beyond redemption, but Jesus not only initiates a conversation with her, he says, if you knew who it was who was offering you living water, you'd ask him, I'd give you living water. Uh, she says, I know the Messiah is coming at some point. He says, uh, the one who speaks to you, uh, I am he, I am the Messiah. Uh, and we see a mini uh, revival taking place in Sychar as this woman and many people responded to Christ. But the point is Christ didn't, uh, wasn't limited by the prejudice that existed and cut both ways between Jew and Samaritan and Samaritan and Jew. But uh, now we're several years later. Uh, we're in the very initial phases of the New Testament church. And at this point, the church has been centered in Jerusalem and has been 99.999% Jewish, if not 100% Jewish. Uh, and now for the first time, we're going to have Philip, happens to be the individual, uh, with a specificity uh, focus on preaching Christ to Samaritans on their own home court. So Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Most scholars think the city of Samaria here is referring to Sebasti, which was a city uh, built uh, on or just outside of the ruins of the ancient capital of Samaria, which had been destroyed by the Assyrians in 721 B.C. And uh, uh, Herod the Great had built the city up and had named it after the Roman emperor to make points with his boss. Uh, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was being said by Philip. Now, what's Philip saying? Well, we know according to verse 5, he was proclaiming Christ. He's talking about Christ, saying Jesus Christ was and is the Jewish Messiah. He's also the Savior of the world. He died for our sins. He rose again. Whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, 
have everlasting life, that kind of thing. And the crowds, not every individual, but a, a, a good percentage of the people in Sebasti here are hearing, uh, giving attention, accepting and embracing the message of Philip. Uh, Philip is reinforcing what he's saying with apostolic signs and wonders. We're seeing in the book of Acts in the early phases of the church, God, especially on pioneer missionary fronts, uh, when new things are happening, he'll reinforce and confirm what the apostles, and in this case, a close associate of the apostles, Philip is saying about Christ with uh, authenticating sign miracles. These people don't have a New Testament scripture as their basis. They don't have an objective written New Testament scripture yet. So God gives them apostolic signs and wonders. And the bottom line is, verse 8, there's much rejoicing in the city. Kairos, the verb there in the Greek, it's a Holy Spirit kind of thing. They don't get baptized by the Holy Spirit until Peter and John come up from Jerusalem, but they are regenerated by the Holy Spirit when they believe, and salvation brings joy, and they've got joy. So that's a, that's a good start. So he proclaims Christ directly to Samaritans. First time in church history that happens. Now, let's talk about um, a specific individual who comes to faith during this uh, revival that uh, Philip preaches. His name is Simon. And Simon, one of the new Samaritan believers, in fact, has a very dark past. Verse 9, now there was a man named Simon who formerly... Before Philip came to town, before he uh, Simon had received Christ, who formerly was practicing magic in the city, astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great, the great Houdini, the amazing Kreskin, kind of thing. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what's called the great power of God. This guy can do magic tricks. He can do stuff we can't explain. Uh, here's the thing. Not everything that's supernatural is from God. I know secularists don't believe in the supernatural, but there is a metaphysical reality that's the basis of all reality. Supernatural things can and do happen, but not everything that's supernatural is from God. And my take on Simon is he probably did more sleight of hand than demonic kind of things, but he probably got an assist from a demon once in a while just to keep the act going. Verse 11, and they were giving him attention. They had uh, in the city been very impressed by Simon because he had for a long time astonished them with the magic arts. But when they believed Philip, the crowds giving attention, much rejoicing, when they, a big majority or at least a big group of people in the city of Sebasti, believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they're being baptized to publicly proclaim their faith, men and women alike. That's a general statement. Specific, verse 13, even Simon himself, you know, who formerly had been uh, a magician and a self-proclaimed great person, powerful person, even Simon himself believed. Acts doesn't say here that he pretended to believe or appeared to have believed or he only uh, faked it. No, Simon here believed, and after being baptized like everybody else had believed, he continued on with Philip. He didn't just show up, you know, walk an aisle, sign a card, get baptized. Everybody pats him on the head, tells him how great he is, and then you never see him again. He's hanging in there. Came to faith, public identified with Christ, hanging in there with Philip, who brought the good news, uh, and very impressed by Philip's uh, content message and also his methods, obviously doing real supernatural things to affirm uh, 
what he's saying about the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's verses 4 through 13. Philip's evangelistic ministry was blessed by God. Now let's look at verses 14 through 24. Philip's evangelistic ministry to the Samaritans is confirmed by the apostles. Look at verses 14 through 17. And we're going to see here a very unique, delayed giving of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Since the various earliest days of the church, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a ministry of the Spirit that places the believing sinner into the body of Christ. It doesn't matter what denomination you're in or what church you stay home from when it's too hot, too cold, too windy, not windy enough, uh, too rainy, too snowy, not snowy enough, drought, uh, baseball game, uh, tired from Kiwanis Club golf tournament the day before. Uh, it doesn't matter what church denomination you're associated with or you stay home from too much. Uh, if you're a born-again believer in Christ, you're a member of the capital C universal church because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not experiential, and it's not water. It's real. It's spiritual. Uh, it's uh, uh, non-experiential, but it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit puts us in the body of Christ. Now, uh, these Samaritan believers have not yet become body, members of the body of Christ. It's not going to happen until Peter and John get there. And we'll talk about why it's delayed in this one case in a moment. But let's just say they are free-floating free agents for a couple of days here. But uh, look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria, that Philip had gone to Samaria, and they'd received the word of God and the message of salvation through Christ, they sent Peter and John to go check it out. I think they they want to confirm that what they're hearing is actually happening, because sometimes the first reports you get aren't always very accurate. And also, uh, Peter and John have another uh, a part of their agenda. They want to publicly, in a unique way, uh, confer the baptism of the Spirit so that everybody on both sides of the huge cultural divide, Jew and Samaritan, understand that all believers, Jew or Samaritan or Gentile for that matter, are all part of one body. And there aren't separate churches, just like there had been separate religions of Samaria vis-a-vis Jerusalem. So the apostles heard, they sent Peter and John to represent the apostles to Samaria, and they uh, came to the city and they prayed for them, Peter and John prayed for the new believers, including Simon, that they might receive the Holy Spirit like the apostles had received the Holy Spirit back in Acts 2, the baptism of the Spirit, the ministry that puts them into the body of Christ. Verse 16, for they, uh, for he, the Holy Spirit, knows it's a he there. The Holy Spirit is not a force, not an it, not like electricity and gravity, an impersonal force, but it's a person. He's a person with mind, will, and emotion. For he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They had believed and been regenerated. They'd been baptized in water, but they had been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were unique, uh, free-floating free agents for a couple of days before as believers on this side of Acts 2. They were officially and formally part of the body of Christ. Uh, Verse 17, then they began laying their hands on them, and they, the new converts, were receiving the Holy Spirit. Very unique, very interesting. Why is there a 
divinely, apostolically imposed and remedied uh, disconnect in time between the Samaritans coming to faith and receiving eternal life, regeneration, and the Samaritans as believers being baptized by the Holy Spirit and becoming formally part of the body of Christ. Well, my old Greek teacher at Dallas Seminary, Zane Hodges, says this in his commentary. This unusual method by which the Samaritans received the Spirit prevented schism and rivalry at the very first. Samaritan religion rejected the claims of Jerusalem. But the Samaritan converts, the Christian converts, are now made to sense that their indebtedness to it, to biblical Judaism, was real and substantial. Jews despise Samaritans. Samaritans despise Jews. Yet here, Jews, Jewish apostles, lay hands on Samaritans and pray for them. Had the Spirit been given in Samaria at first, when the Samaritans had originally initially believed, this fact might have been distorted to prove, quote-unquote, that the, the Samaritans uh, were, would be able to justify downgrading uh, the place where God had put his name, Jerusalem, the historical background, and more importantly, the authority of the Jewish apostles over the church. The, the twelve apostles are the foundation of the church, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. So the wisdom of God prevents any kind of false assumptions from the get-go. This unique timing of a separation between saving faith and the baptism of the Holy Spirit was due to the need for the apostles to, number one, directly affirm the, the, the legitimacy of the salvation of the Samaritans and to affirm their full inclusion in the capital C Church Body of Christ and therefore to prevent uh, the start of a second parallel competing Samaritan sect of Christianity that would try to function distinct from apostolic Christianity in the apostolic church. Uh, chapter 8 here, with this disconnect between the reception of salvation and the reception of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is a unique historical case, the kind of thing that will happen in the first generation of the church and never again. And our charismatic brethren, unfortunately, look at this kind of situation and they say, hey, there was a, a separation between receiving Christ in faith and then receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So clearly the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second work of grace that must be sought uh, and received through the laying on of hands at a church service after everybody gets very worked up emotionally and certain things happen that are more psychological than spiritual in most cases, in my humble opinion. First uh, Corinthians twelve thirteen. Uh, written by Paul to the Corinthians several decades after Acts 8, uh, seems to make it clear, as does the rest of the New Testament epistles, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that all believers experience uh, at the moment of salvation. There are, there are no, no exceptions, whereby one spirit we've all been baptized or identified with the body of Christ, with one body, all been made to drink of the same spirit. So we have this inherent unity in the Christian church, regardless of color, country or culture, uh, great ethnic hatred and diversity, uh, all those things are uh, uh, welded together, are blown away, and then the individuals are, blown, are welded together 
through the unity of the body of Christ, and that is uh, kind of cemented and affected by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is a subjective thing, but having spent time in the Middle East at the only graduate-level Christian seminary in the Arab world, Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary, and having uh, been in uh, the interior of Mexico where tourists don't go, like Kanoa, uh, or having been in Esquintla, Guatemala, or Harbin, China, and in and, and, uh, Chichihar, China, north of North Korea, uh, and having found and interacted with believers in, in Christ in those places, those diverse places culturally, uh, it's amazing the unity you do sense quite often with with other believers, and it's they're like uh, brothers and sisters from different mothers, I guess, although we have really the same spiritual father, don't we, uh, and the same Holy Spirit who binds us together in the body of Christ, okay? So, so far, so good, even though we've got that very unique separation between regeneration and the baptism of the Spirit, but I told you uh, my understanding of the reasons for that. Now, let's look at verses 18 through 24 as Philip's evangelistic ministry to the Samaritans is being confirmed by the apostles. And we're going to see a special request by Simon, the former magician, at slam dunked by the apostle Peter. Okay? Look at verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was being bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He wants to buy that kind of power. Now, everybody assumes negative and horrible uh, motivations, but maybe he's saying, hey, I'm going to be living for Christ and sharing Christ, and when people come to faith, rather than waiting for you guys to come up from Jerusalem, I want to be able to do that. Uh, He may also be thinking in terms of franchising. You know, uh, He's going to have a special franchise here, and I couldn't be great as an unbeliever, as a magician, but I'm really going to become great this way. So he may have mixed motives. But he's not trying to buy salvation. He's trying to buy the ability to confer the baptism of the Holy Spirit on new believers. So he offered them money for that power, saying, Give this authority, verse 19, to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And I think he clearly means everyone who comes to faith in Christ that I am able to minister to, I can put my hands on them, and boom, they'll have the same kind of experience. But Peter said to him very sternly and severely, uh, may your silver perish with you. Drop dead with silver in your hands. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works. Salvation is the gift of God in Ephesians 2. Here the gift of God he's trying to buy isn't salvation. It's the post-salvation conference of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that puts new believers in the body of Christ, and he wants to buy that with money. And Peter's saying, it's not for sale. Uh, you made a category mistake. Plus, normally, there's not going to be a separation anyway. As soon as the people believe, they are going to be baptized by the Spirit. So uh, lots of reasons uh, for us not to do this for you. Verse 21, Peter says, you have no part or portion in this ministry. You're not an apostle, and there's no need for you to do this, and it's not for sale, for your heart is not right before God. So clearly, he had some mixed motives, right? And just assuming he can buy uh, spiritual dynamics with money is a problem, right? Therefore, repent, metanaeo, change your mind so that the direction of your life will change too. Uh, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven for I see you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Uh, 
Notice he says, basically, Peter says, may your silver perish with you, drop dead. Now, we just had two believers drop dead in Jerusalem back in chapter 5, didn't we? Ananias and Sapphira for serious formal major hypocrisy. I think that serious hypocrisy in the church does more damage to the church than does external persecution. Uh, And those two individuals, Ananias and Sapphira, faced sin unto death. They were... Uh, had their lives shortened. They dropped dead because of serious sin. So Peter knows that can happen. He was there when it happened. So he's basically saying, hey, you may be on the uh, Ananias and Sapphira train here, big boy. Uh, you better repent uh, while you're still alive, while the getting's good, that you may be forgiven of this. For I see you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Uh, that's not terminology we use much nowadays. But I got to remember that I could use that next time somebody tries to bug me. You know, I can just say, "Hey, drop dead, buddy. Uh, you're are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity." But he's just saying some serious stuff here, and no doubt Simon's sin's very serious. And this is not nothing to make light of at all, and I'm not trying to do that. Uh, but let's talk about this for a minute because Christian teachers and theologians disagree on spirit on Simon's spiritual status here. Uh, one view that's probably the more popular view, frankly, is that Simon's sin here is so serious and Peter's response to him is so severe, it indicates that Simon was never really a believer. His faith wasn't sincere, a uh, real trust in Christ. Uh, you know what? That's not impossible here. I wasn't there. Uh, I've got limited data. I don't think that's what's happening here, but I'm sure that kind of thing does happen uh, especially if we were using a lot of psychological dynamics to get people to walk an aisle, sign a car, jump through hoops, make promises, join things, quit things, uh, external kind of things we can measure and see. Uh, and I'm quite sure people get emotionally involved uh, in certain services and certain types of revivals, and they walk an aisle, and they sign a card, and they get baptized, and everybody tells them how great they are. And then you never see them again, and you wonder, did they understand it? Do they really believe it? Do they really embrace Christ as Savior? Uh, who knows? God knows, but I'm sure quite often that, that kind of thing does, uh, can and does happen. However, here, uh, I don't think that's what's happening here. Uh, I think Simon's sin is very serious. In fact, Simon's sin is probably almost as bad as some of the sins of Peter and his multiple and profane public denials of Christ and even something that happens in the upper room in John 13 before Peter denies. He he does something else that the Lord really rebukes just as strongly as Peter rebukes Simon here. Um, I think Simon's sin, uh, as I said, was probably right on the verge of being as serious as the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. But the text clearly says, rather than reading our theology into this thing, the text says that Many people in the city believed, and even Simon himself believed. Pistuo. Same verb, everything. It doesn't say he pretended to believe, he appeared to have believed, maybe he believed. As F.F. Bruce, the British evangelical, says, uh, Simon had believed Philip's message about Christ, and he had been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But he still manifested his old, unregenerate nature. He was still attached to the bitter gall of superstition. Here's the principle. Real Christians can do really bad things. Uh, Things that are inconsistent with our faith in Christ and our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Uh, God does not do a sin nature ectomy on new believers. Uh, he doesn't do a sin nature ectomy on Christians after they're baptized by the Holy Spirit, either at the moment of regeneration or, in this case, a couple of days after for the Samaritans, the first time the gospel hit Samaria. Um, while in some cases God sovereignly eliminates much of the baggage some new believers carry into the kingdom with them, most of us continue to carry and thus need to battle uh, our, our old original weaknesses. Uh, that, that explains, uh, uh, it explains, but it doesn't excuse why uh, somebody with certain tendencies before their believer might have the same kind of sinful tendencies. But Paul says, walk in the Spirit so you won't carry out the desires of the sin nature, right? Uh, walk in the light so you won't walk in the darkness. So the fact that Simon can say some pretty stupid, sinful stuff here and obviously have uh, intentions uh, to use this power not just for the glory of God to promote himself uh, doesn't necessarily mean he's not really a believer. James Montgomery Boyce, uh, a good five-point Calvinist who had been the uh, pastor at the 10th Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for 20 or 30 years after Darnold Gray Barnhouse uh, did his ministry there, uh, says this about verse 21. Uh, remember in verse 21 here of Acts 8, uh, Peter says to Simon, you have no part or portion in this ministry, this ministry of apostolic ministry, in this case of conferring the Holy Spirit. Uh, your heart's not right for God. When Peter says to Simon, you have no part or share in this ministry, it's interesting that he employs the same wording Jesus used for him, for Peter, when Peter had objected to Jesus washing his feet in the upper room. In John 13, 8, where Jesus says to Peter, unless I wash your feet, you have no part, no ministry, no connection with me. Strong words, but Peter wasn't an unbeliever. He was just out of the will of God. That's what Boyce says, and he's right. And that's the same kind of thing here. Okay, So serious stuff, but I personally don't believe that this is saying that uh, Simon was never, ever, uh, a believer at all, and I think he was. Now, by the way, the word simony, simony is uh, an English term that's been coined uh, to refer to people who use money to try to buy power or influence in the church, in Christian circles. Uh, they're taking this specific example of Simon trying to buy apostolic powers uh, and applying it to people who will put a big gift in the uh uh, offering play expecting to be voted as a deacon or something like that. And that's that's not good, obviously. And so we get that English word, which you don't hear much anymore, but if you do, that's where it comes from. All right, let's look at the super happy ending here of this uh, narrative in verse 25. We've seen Philip's evangelistic ministry to the Samaritans blessed by God and people coming to faith in Christ. Philip's evangelistic ministry to the Samaritans confirmed by the apostles, even though we have the... Uh, the, the bad business of Simon trying to buy uh, power that was not his and not for sale. Uh, now we have the super happy ending, verse 23. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord to the city, Peter and John started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So after the bad news, Simon, the new believer, seeks to buy the power to confer the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have good news. Simon seeks prayer. In fact, you know what? I, I totally jumped over verse 24. 
talking about Simon's response to the admonition of Peter, Simon answered in verse 24, Hey, Peter, pray to the Lord for me, okay? I'm going to pray, but I want you to pray for me uh, yourselves, Peter and John. I want apostolic prayer for me so that this discipline will not come upon me. I, I, he's repentant. He's contrite. He's saying, boom, okay, I did the ba- a bad thing here. Uh, I don't want uh, uh, that to permanently affect my fellowship and my ministry and my walk with God. Please, you pray for me too. So that's, to me, that's further indication you're looking at Simon as a real believer. But the happy, super happy ending here is that as Peter and John leave the city where this um, revival had taken place and go back to Jerusalem, now they're actually with intention stopping in Samaritan villages and sharing Christ with these people. So we have a big major break uh, down of artificial kind of sociological barriers that the church is not going to recognize because Jesus and certainly the program of God doesn't recognize that. It doesn't matter what country, color, or culture you are. If you're a believer, uh, you are part of the body of Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So take this to heart. Uh, This passage is about the universality of the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Christ, I mean the capital C, body of Christ, that transcends denominations is made up of Jews and Gentiles and even Samaritans who receive the grace of God through faith in the Savior. This inherent unity is not man-made, but God-given and exists even if and when is ignored, overlooked, underappreciated, or even denied. And sometimes Christians and individual churches and even groups and denominations will do those kind of things uh, claiming their uh, superiority and their uniqueness. But uh, if you're a born-again believer, uh, regardless of your denomination, your country, color, country, or culture, you're part of the same body. There's only one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith. Uh, for us here at Tangled Bible Fellowship, as you look at the diagram with all the ovals, the cross and resurrections in the middle, and then you've got Assembly of God believers and Presbyterian believers and Methodist believers and Church of the Nazarene believers and Southern Baptists and Northern Baptists and even Tanglewood Bible Fellowship Church believers, uh, regenerate believers are all part of the body of Christ. That's the way God sees his church despite the denominational divides. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are some churches, denominations have gone so far to the left They deny everything worth believing. They deny the atonement of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, uh, individual personal salvation through Christ. A lot of them are social reformers. They teach corporate salvation. We're going to send uh, urban renewal in to save the communities by giving them nicer buildings they can destroy over a short period of time. Uh, That's one approach. There are some groups that claim to be Christian so far to the left. They're not really born-again regenerate believers. There's some groups so far to the right that they think salvation is their own personal franchise doled out by uh, works with a little bit of faith and something uh, as they do it on the installment plan. And that seems to be be, uh, salvation by works, which is anathema, according to Paul. And it also seems to be uh, more of a probation by faith and works as opposed to salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, we're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. Good works are not the root or the cause of our salvation. They are the fruit, the result of salvation. Beyond that, I think some nice expressions 
of the body of Christ that transcends cultures, colors, and denominations here in Duncan would include ministries like uh, uh, The Well, which is now called One True Light, uh, and they do things like Spokes for Hope, where they're feeding uh, school kids during the summer. They do things like Link One Mentoring. There are 50 of us, uh, more than 50 of us now, that are doing mentoring in the public schools. Uh, Gabriel's House is another nice uh, Christian-based, multi-denominational ministry that's an expression of the body of Christ that helps uh, kids that would otherwise be going home to empty houses because mom's working uh, two jobs to keep them afloat, uh, and it gives them a safe place to be after school for several hours with spiritual support and academic support. Uh, Christians Concerned, uh, now located uh, downtown just uh, west of the police station on Willow, if you want to know where it is, uh, provides uh, financial, uh, food, uh, clothing, and other material help, and they get their funding from a bunch of us churches that chip in and uh, together we can do a lot more uh, than we can separately on those kind of things. So let's I never forget the importance and the reality of the unity of the body of Christ. Uh, and let's never uh, minimize that or, or take that for granted. And we'll close with prayer.